That's as good as I've ever heard it played, you know, here. Woo. Well, the teaching notes for this morning are available online. If you'd like to download those, look at those. This morning, we're going to talk about having confidence in the cross of Christ. And I'm gonna pray, invite the Holy Spirit to come and help me, help us. Father, we love you. And Lord, we love your word. We love Jesus. We love who he is. Lord, I ask for the increase of your Holy Spirit this morning. I ask that your presence would touch our hearts and that we would see and savor Christ in a deeper way. That our hearts would be struck afresh with the beauty of who you are, that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened in the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we've been going through this year and going through obviously pandemic and racial hostility and all the, all the challenges that we're facing both individually and, and corporately as a church and, and as a people, the Lord just keeps highlighting to me over and over and over again the centrality and the importance and the beauty of the cross. And I can't get away from it because when I'm afflicted and I go to the cross there, I find comfort. And when I'm comforted in my flesh and I go to the cross there, I become afflicted. The cross never leaves us the same. And it always challenges us and it provokes and it heals and it, scripture tells us that it demonstrates the love, the affections of God. It demonstrates it for us in an undeniable historic way, a visible way, a, a tangible way that the, the love of God and the affections of God are not abstract ideas. It's not just words. He didn't just come down and, and hand us a piece of paper and say, hey, I love you. Bye, and then go back to heaven. But he came down, scripture tells us, and he, he demonstrated his love and, and his affection and how far he was willing to go to purchase our souls from the grave. Hallelujah. And Paul in, in Corinthians when he begins to address the problems that are in Corinth, and, and Corinth is much like our culture today. It's very secularized. It's very polytheistic. There's all these gods and all these idols and, and all this wealth and all this opulence. And, and, and Paul goes into this paganistic, this hyper-sexualized, sensualized culture, okay? Just like ours. And he goes into the church and, and there's all this division and strife and, and fighting that's happening. And he says, I'm only gonna preach Christ crucified because I know that if I preach Christ crucified and if I not just preach it, but I demonstrate it and I live it out that the people of God will come into the maturity and into that which God has designed and ordained for them. It's through the cross. And there's no other way. 
And there's no other true answer but for us as the people of God to, to come before the cross in a fresh way. I wanna share with you a brief story. In Japan in 1549, there were these Portuguese missionaries that went to preach the gospel. And they went to this specific city called Kyoto. And Kyoto was a obviously non-saved, you know, there was not a strong church presence there. And these Portuguese missionaries go to Kyoto, Japan in the mid 1500s, and they begin preaching the gospel and this revival breaks out. And over 100,000 people come to the Lord. This is remarkable. And, 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 it, and the, the gospel begins to spread. And within a few decades, there's over 300,000 converts that are here, that are, that are in that region. And what happens is, is that the government makes this ruling that it's illegal to be a Christian and it's illegal to preach the gospel and all this stuff. And they begin clamping down and persecuting the saints in a really, really intense way. I mean, horrific. The details are really, really graphic. And in the late 1500s, just before the turn of the century, they decide to make an example of some of these believers. And so they take these 23 adult Christians and these three children that were like 12, 13, 14 years old, and they make them march from Kyoto all the way to Nagasaki. It's like over 400 miles. And they lead them through all the towns and the villages and all this stuff. And, and many of them, many of the believers had their ears and their noses cut off to humiliate them, to make a point that the gospel of Christ will not be preached in this nation. And they lead them all the way to Nagasaki up onto this hill. And when they come up to the hill, there are all these crosses that are, have been made ready for them to be crucified on and killed after this extremely long, excruciating march that they had gone on. And everyone is quiet. And the, very, the first person to speak is this 12-year-old boy who is a believer, a 12-year-old. Think about this. And this 12-year-old looks at the crosses and he looks at his captors and he says this. He says, show me my cross. And then this other 13-year-old boy speaks up and he says, show me mine as well. In other words, they were saying, I'm ready to die for Christ. Take me to my cross. And when I read this story, you know, it, it strikes me. There's so much about it that, that strikes me, that afflicts me, that challenges me, that, that makes me weep, that, that makes me rejoice. That's what the cross does. The cross, make, it's this, all of this deluge of emotion. It makes us cry. It makes us rejoice. It makes us praise. It makes us weep. And, and then we laugh because when we look at the cross, we see the demonstration of the love of God through the most horrific suffering. And Paul, when he goes into Corinth and begins to exhort the church and begins to call her into the mature things of love, he begins to preach the cross and preach Christ crucified. 
And I think that we're in an hour in our nation as the church, as believers, where there's a, there's a response, there's an invitation from the Lord to encounter him in a deep way, to have the, the shakings that we're experiencing shake up where we're at as individuals. I mean, really disrupt our lives and really begin to, to give us a vision, not just for the cross as a, as a picture, as a, as a metaphor, but to show us the cross as a lifestyle and the cross as an invitation into the things of God. We're called to live it. We know that at the end of the age, and even now, the Holy Spirit is working to bring forth a mature bride in the nations. She'll be victorious in love. She'll be victorious in love and, and victorious in love for the church. Part of it will be embracing the cross, living the crucified life before him, dying to everything else and living this pure, undefiled, holy love to God. You know, Jesus is gonna have a bride that loves him like he loves her. And that's the vision for your life that God has. He wants you and he's working and, and you're going through seasons of life that are preparing you to love God in the way that he loves you. And how did he love us? Well, he demonstrated how much he loved us. He demonstrated how far he was willing to go in love by enduring the suffering of the cross all for the sake of love. And he's gonna have a bride that has that same heart, that has that, that same desire, that has that same joy. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross and you were that joy. When he looked at you, he said, There's, there is no length that I'm willing to not go in order to have her, in order to have him with me forever. Nothing can stop me. I'll go the distance. I'll go all the way for love. And at the end of the age, when the bride is made ready and, and spotless, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, holy, without spot, she is a bride that is willing to go the distance for the sake of love. And when confronted with persecution and suffering and loss and even the loss of her own life, she says, like these young men in, in Japan, hundreds of years ago, show me my cross. Because I long to demonstrate Love for God in the way that he demonstrated love for me. I tell you, that is perfect love. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. Then he would lay down his life for his friends. And to the world, that, may, that seems irrational. That seems confusing. That's why the Romeo and Juliet story is a tragedy because they're dying for love, but everybody reads that in the natural sense. It's like, that's so dumb. Why did you die? Like the story's over now. But in the Christian story, in the, in the Christian life, death is not the end. Death is not the end, beloved. It is only the beginning. 
Because when Christ died, the story didn't end. It was only beginning and no one saw him getting out of the grave three days later. No one forecast that. No one predicted that. And he goes, I'm going to defeat the power of sin and death. I'm going to take the keys to the grave and I'm going to have a bride. I'm going to unlock the heart of people. I'm going to have a bride that follows me and that loves me in the way that I love them. And death will not stop them. And that's why Psalm 16 tells us, death, oh death, where is your sting? Grave, oh grave, where is your victory? There is no sting in death. There is no victory in death anymore for the believer because Christ has overcome the power of death through the cross and you're gonna live forever on a resurrected earth, a renewed earth in a resurrected perfect body. You're not gonna have to wear a mask. You're not gonna get COVID-19. You're not gonna get the flu. You're not gonna have body aches. You're not gonna have sore backs and sore knees and hypoglycemia and diabetes and cancer. It is all gonna be broken in the day of his coming, the resurrection of the saints. He's gonna defeat it all. And beloved, this is where our hope lies. This is where we put our hope and our, and our trust. And when you read the New Testament, you see that it's the gospel that gives us position before God. We become sons of the living God, adopted into his family. And we have the boldness and the ability to endure suffering so that we can be raised in the day of the Lord. It's the gospel and then suffering and then resurrection and victory. That is the narrative of the New Testament. And that must be the narrative that we as believers grab a hold of and walk out in the midst of the times of trouble that both are now and going to increase in the days ahead. Well, that bride, she's going to be confident in love. She is going to boast in the Lord. I mean, whatever you're confident in is the thing you boast in. Whatever you're best at, that's the thing that you wanna boast in because your boast is your strength. You say, I'm really good at this and I'm really gifted at this or the Lord has anointed me for this. You know, Jeremiah tells us that the wise man, he boasts in his wisdom. He says, I'm wise. The strong man, he boasts in his strength. The, the, the rich man, he boasts in his riches. You derive your sense of confidence from something, the Lord is gonna have a people that derive their sense of confidence from a cross. I mean, that's bizarre. That's why Paul says it's, it's foolishness to this world. It makes no sense. It's like saying I have my confidence in capital punishment, the electric chair. I mean, the, the cross was the, the capital punishment mechanism of the day of humiliation and defeat. It was what Rome used to break their enemies and wear them down psychologically, mentally, physically, all of that. And Paul says my, my only boast is in the cross. 
He didn't talk about how brilliant he was. He didn't talk about how committed he was in obedience and sacrificial love. He said, I only boast in him because my confidence, I derive it from what Christ has done. All of my works, all of my talent, my my wisdom, my strength, none of it really matters. I lay it all down and I make my boast in Christ. This is what the Lord wants us to have our confidence in. Christ, him crucified, the work of the cross, the power of the spirit, the will of God that is manifest through the church on the earth, even in this age, that we would have our full confidence in him, that no matter how our life is shaken, no matter how our finances are shaken or our health, whatever happens that we could like Paul and Silas even be in prison, hanging in chains and yet singing hymns to God. If I were in chains in prison, I would be praying, Lord, break these chains, get me out of here. And here they are singing, the, singing hymns, rejoicing in God. It tells us that the apostles went on their way rejoicing because they were able to share in the sufferings of Christ. Beloved, what is this type of faith? What is this type of confidence in God that the people of God remain unshakable regardless of their circumstances? How do we know what we have our confidence in? Ask yourself these three questions just in your own minds as I say them. When I hit rock bottom, what do I turn to? When your life hits rock bottom, some of you have hit rock bottom, what do you turn to? That that is your boast, that is your confidence, that's the thing that you trust in. Question number two, what has to go right for me in my life to sing with joy? What is it in your life that has to change for you to for your heart to overflow with songs of joy and rejoicing and singing. What has to happen? Does anything have to happen? Do your circumstances have to change in order to bring forth a song of joy? Some people say, you know, I I need a better relationship or I need a better financial position or I need a better home or I need a better this or I need to be recognized or I need to have position or authority and all that. And And what that shows us is that inside our heart, we put our confidence in something outside of God and the cross of Christ in order to bring us joy and satisfaction and delight in him. Question number three, what has to happen to me to have delight and be fully satisfied on the inside? What has to happen? What has to happen in your heart in order for you to feel content and at peace on the inside? The cross brings us peace with God. We're fully satisfied in him. We know all these answers, but our lives often tell a very different story, don't they? We say it, but walking it out is different. It's just like talking about the cross is so easy compared to living the cross. It's so much different when we're confronted, when the, when the chips are down in our life, when we're under pressure, we're under duress, we're, we're under financial pressure and relational strain is in our life and, and all of these different issues and problems. 
to have a heart that is content, satisfied in God, rejoicing in him. These things show us in a small way what it is that we truly put our confidence in. Some have to be a part of a particular church or ministry or some have to be recognized by certain leaders. Some have to have certain circles of friends that are like super cool. You know, to feel like confident, to feel satisfied on the inside. And the Lord knows this and he's, he's helping us. And we'll see in a moment in Hebrews he tells us that he's gonna come and he's gonna mess with our lives. He's gonna come shake those things that are temporal so that we're driven to the foot of the cross again and we, we cling to him and we see him as truly our only hope and our only joy and our only delight because he longs to reveal himself in that way with such power and beauty to the people of God. And he's going, just come, come near to me. I want to satisfy you and I want your confidence to be fully in me. In February of this year, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, I got a Valentine card from the Lord. <laughs> I took a nap and I had a dream. I call it the golden wind dream. And, and in the dream, what was happening was that there were these institutions of political and religious power that were being blown over. They were symbolized by these huge trees. And this golden wind that I knew was the wind of the spirit began blowing over these things. And, and as I looked at the root system, because these huge trees were being pulled up by the roots, I began to understand that the root system was confidence in these temporal things. And the Lord was dealing with the body of Christ in these different areas. And, and he was challenging me personally. And I think he's challenging us. He's saying, what is your confidence in? Because this is what the voice said in the dream. The voice said in the dream, there is no safety in the Republican party. There's no safety in the Democratic party. There's no safety in streams of ministry nor affiliation in the body of Christ. Because our confidence often gets put into these things. And if we get our candidate in power and, and if we get the justices that we want and, and if we get a part of the ministry that we want and if we get the right friends in that ministry and if we get the right people to acknowledge us that we're a part of that ministry, that it bolsters our confidence in some way. And the Lord said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start dealing with this and I'm gonna expose these roots. I'm gonna show you with these political and religious institutions. He goes, I'm gonna expose them. There's only safety in one thing. It's in me. It's in Christ. I mean, it's, it's really in the cross. And he goes, I'm gonna have a, a people, I'm gonna have a bride that are confident in me. Because, I mean, when we're looking at the New Testament and we're reading these things about Christ and him crucified and all this, I mean, it's, it's happening under the Roman Empire, under the most brutal, persecuting, powerful empire in all of history. I mean, the, the torment, the persecution that's towards the church, all of these things that are happening in everything in terms of being a believer is being shaken. 
Their houses are being ripped away. Their families are being ripped away. They're being sent into captivity. They're being fed to wild animals. They're suffering for the gospel, and yet they're enduring. And their confidence was not in anything temporal or anything that man could make happen. Their confidence was in the blessed hope, the appearing of Christ and the resurrection of their mortal body. And that's what the Lord wants us to have our confidence in because the shakings are going to expose these temporal things that we cling on to. The shaking is gonna expose it. And the church we know is Ephesians 5, 27. I mentioned it earlier, but Christ is gonna have a glorious church. I mean, a glorious church. Was the last time you thought about the church and the earth and the first words out of your mouth is, she's gonna be glorious. No, somehow every Christian knows what's wrong with the church and yet we're still a part of it. Like, how did we all figure that out? Like the world knows, like you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. We know we're a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, how does everyone know we're messed up? And yet Jesus says, I will have a glorious church and I love her and I'm gonna demonstrate my love to her over and over and over again. I'm so committed to her. I wanna tell you, we gotta get on Jesus's team about the church and what's going on. We gotta, we gotta quit attacking each other. The, the hand is punching the eye and the eye is winking at the other hand and the hand is punching the, the body of Christ. There's so much division and that's what Paul addresses in Corinthians. He comes right into the midst of the division and he says, Christ and him crucified. You can't remain in division when you come to the cross. You can't. Not if you're just, if you come just for the show, you might. But if you come and then you see what he says, he says, now deny yourself, pick up your cross and come and follow me, the resurrected Lord. I mean, you can't remain in division when you do that. The propensity of the human heart is to put confidence in what is seen and tangible and manipulated easily That's the propensity of the human heart. We wanna put confidence in what we can see and control, right? The carnal human heart loves control. It's why idolatry is so prolific in our society because idolatry allows us to set the terms by which we control our gods, Idolatry allows us to set the terms because in the ancient days when you were an idol maker and you were fashioning an idol, you could make it look like whatever you wanted it to look like. You could set the rules by which you had to serve the idol. You were in control when you were fashioning this idol for your own pleasure, for your own desire. And I wanna tell you that idolatry is as real and alive today as it was in ancient Israel or ancient Babylon or ancient Assyria or ancient Egypt, whatever it is, idolatry is there because it's when the human heart sets its own rules and it fashions gods after its own desires. They don't have to be visible, though they can be. The Lord desires to shake our unholy alliances with that which is carnal, temporal, visible, manipulated. 
Because if, if, if our vision for our life and for the body of Christ and for the people of God can be, can be reached by human means, we're not doing it right. If we think that human means are gonna set the trajectory and bring us into the depth of love and power and the experiential knowledge of God and the maturity that Christ longs for, we're not doing it right. Because Jesus says, I want all the glory. He's gonna be seen as the hero at the end of the story. Every eye is gonna look at him. Every knee is gonna bow. Every tongue is gonna confess, you are the Lord. You did this. You know, there's a chorus we sing in the prayer room that the Lord would do something that we could only blame on him. I mean, when revival breaks out in our city, and the lost are coming to Christ in droves and the nets are breaking and we're calling every you know, ministry and church in the city and going, the nets are breaking because of all the people that are coming to the Lord. I wanna promise you that we are not gonna stand up and say, we did this. The intercessors, we did this. Let's give us the glory, give us the credit Blame it on us. We did this. We, we were so committed to the Lord. No, 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 no. The Lord is gonna do something here that we can only blame on him. That when the power comes and the, and the healing comes and the revival comes and blind eyes are opening and people are getting out of wheelchairs and the deaf are hearing and the glory of God is manifest in our midst, like he promised, he's gonna get the glory. It's gonna be him. Page two. The Psalms highlight in two different parts and others that the Christian doesn't put their trust in political power for salvation. Some see their deliverance to the political might of men. And this was the exact expectation of the first century Jew, even the followers of Jesus. They thought if this is the Messiah, the Messiah is supposed to come in accordance with the scriptures and defeat our enemies and make us the head of the nations so that we don't get our tail whipped anymore. They put their trust in a political power. You know what the main argument of the disciples was as they followed Jesus around? Who's gonna be the greatest in that kingdom? They're not talking about the kingdom of heaven. They're talking about the rebellion. They're talking about the overthrow of the government where they're the main guys running the nation. Jesus is the main guy and they're like the cabinet members. That was their main occupation of mind and thinking. They had a hope and a political power. Secondly, the Christian doesn't put their trust in any affiliation or stream. And we do this. I've done this, I do this. You know, just because I'm, I'm like here and I get to be a part of this spiritual family, I love our spiritual family and I, I love our values and I love what we do and I love prayer and I love reaching our city and I love community. And I love all these things, but we can't have confidence because we're just grouped in with a certain cool group of people. Our confidence doesn't come through that. It doesn't come through the fact that, that we heard the call from the Lord and we moved our family here and Mike Bickle and Misty Edwards and man, we're just gonna, we're gonna get in with that. We're going all the way for God. 
That can't be where we get our sense of confidence. It's not in man, it's in Christ. Some boast in their stream rather than Christ's work upon the cross because they believe that their their cultural experience, their denomination, their stream, their affiliate, what church they go to is the right one. This happens all the time. Theirs is the right one. So so the idea is when, when things all go down or it plays out like that specific stream or ministry believes that they'll be in the right boat as all the other boats are sinking. That's the idea, hello? Are we getting personal here this morning? They believe that they'll be safe because of just the affiliation with those that are around them. Well, well, I don't, you know, personally have like a deep life in God, but like others that I know, they do. So I'm good. Like I don't really live the values, like I don't really try and walk out the Bible, but like some people that I know, like there's that one guy, Jerry, you know, I follow him, like he's in my friendship group. So if things go down, like I'm just, Jerry will know what to do. We can't live with the, with just the language of the movement and the language of friends of the bridegroom. Beloved, you've gotta, you've gotta be one. You've gotta go all the way with him. You've gotta, Jesus is your only hope. He's your only friendship with God, the invitation, friends of the bridegroom to know him, to know the passion of his heart, to know the stirrings of his desire, to walk in humility and love and power and the Sermon on the Mount. We can't just talk about it. We've gotta do it. We gotta walk it out. We gotta live the life crucified. You can't just wear a cross necklace around and just assume you're covered. It it doesn't work like that. You can't just go to the conference and and get the flame logo on your t-shirt and just be like, hey, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. That's not how it works, man. You've gotta go all the way with him. You gotta make your own choices and your own decisions and live out of your own conviction so that your confidence is in Christ. Paul addresses this in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 3. I'll read you the verse. It says that the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. That's what we're talking about. We can't boast in our leaders or pastors or worship guy or gal that we like. That's not where our, that's not where our safety is. We've gotta go get something for ourselves in God. We gotta build a root system of him, in him. We gotta be tested. We gotta be tried through the fire. You gotta walk through some pain, some trauma, some some setbacks in your life and, and, and have your faith tested so that it endures and it's purified as Peter talks about like gold. Paul is addressing this issue because a bunch of people in the church, they're going, well, I, I'm of Paul and others are going, well, I'm of the ministry of Apollos and others are going, well, I like Cephas and his ministry and that appeals to me. And their faith was wrapped up just in affiliation with a certain leader, see, or a certain stream. Paul goes right in, let no one boast in men. 
He says, let no one boast in Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. He says, all are yours. And what he means is all are yours in Christ. Go find out what you said yes to at the new birth. Go plumb the riches of the knowledge of God, build a history in him, build a confidence in him that's in secret so that when the hour of shaking comes, you remain unshakable in your faith before God. Don't live near the heat of another person's passion for Christ. Let it provoke you. Don't let it absolve you. If your kids are more fiery than you, let that provoke you. Let it stir your prayer life. I need something in God. I hear these teenagers from Awakening Teen Camp asking these questions about the apocalyptic horsemen and Zechariah 6, and that should provoke us, not absolve us. Part of me just wants to go, oh, thank God. Thank God it's happening for the next generation. And then part of me is going, wait a second. I've heard this from those that are older in our midst. You know, well, we just know that this is the youth movement and this is just for the young people. No, don't let that absolve you. Let that provoke you. Finish your race well. Go to the very end. Get as much of God as you can. Go get that gold refined in the fire. Get in the wellspring of the riches of the knowledge of God. Drink deep. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Prophesy and sing as you go to meet the Lord. Go all the way. Your time is not up. Moses was 80 when he was called back to Egypt. A kingdom cannot be shaken. At his trial, Jesus testified that there was a kingdom that was not of this world. Therefore, this world could not touch it. Let me ask you something. Can this world touch your idea about your kingdom? Can this world, does, does, a, power, does a politician, does a person have power over your understanding of the kingdom? Because if that person is not Christ, your kingdom might be of this world rather than of a world and of an age that the earth has never seen before. I mean, Jesus is building a city called the New Jerusalem. It's a diamond city. It's like half the size of the United States. It's 1,380 miles long. It's giant. It's gonna come out of heaven the kings of the earth are gonna look at it. They're gonna be so afraid. They're gonna run away in terror. That's an unshakable kingdom. We follow an unshakable king. That Psalm 2 sits in the heavens and laughs at his enemies and mocks them because they're down here trying to cast off the cords of restraint and trying to rebel against the laws of God and he's laughing at them from heaven. ha, ha, ha. I mean, he's an unshakable king. He has every reason to be unshakable. The man died and came out of the grave holding the keys of hell. Like if there's a man worth following, if there's a man of confidence and boldness and power and beauty, I mean, it's him. Like I wanna be on that dude's team. I'm going with that guy. 
Well, what did he do that was so great? Well, all for love, he suffered as an innocent man upon the cross. He descended into hell. He preached the gospel to the spirits. Then he ascended with the keys of hell and the grave. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he sat down. No one ascends to the right hand of the Father and sits down. Only Christ, the crucified Lord the Lord of glory and beauty and power who's after you, who wants you, who's calling you into the deeper things of him. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 27, that there is a removal of the things that will be shaken. They're going to be shaken. If they're not being shaken now, and there's a whole lot of shaking happening, they're going to be shaken because Christ is trying to remove them. And the so many in the body of Christ are focused on the shaking and asking for the shaking to stop rather than focused on the things in their own souls that are being shaking and getting those to stop. We're trying to pray that the shaking stops and the scripture tells me the shaking's not gonna stop. He's going, I'm removing the temporal things, the, the might of princes and leaders, the wisdom of the wise. The Lord says, I'm removing all that. I'm removing it in my people. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. I'm shaking them. I'm touching their lives. I'm longing that they would call out to me, that they would respond to me, that they would give up the temporal things, casting off the weight and the ensnarement of sin. Let's run the race, amen? We'll finish more later. Let's stand, if you're able to, and I invite the worship team to come out. Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now that we as your people, as your beloved ones, Lord, that we would respond to you in this hour, that we would find a hope in Christ, that we would be unshakable in the hour of shaking, that our lives would be reoriented and, and replumb-lined at Calvary, and that we would drink again of that river of pleasure and delight and power and conviction and the fear of the Lord and all the things that flow down upon us with such grace from the cross of Christ. We ask that we would be truly converted, filled with the knowledge of God. Help us, Lord. so easy we've been so inspired it's so easy man that was a great message it, it, it was a great message we can end up embracing Isaac for the message rather than the cross right now and I just want to lead us in a, a little prayer that we stay focused right now 
on the cross itself. Mm. I'll start with all of us to stand before that cross right now and talk to God and say, thank you. Just everyone out of your own mouth, let's just begin to give thanks. This is a, a critical word for us in this hour. When we've tried to make our opinions the main thing. Thank you, God, for the cross. Yes. Just say that to him. Yes, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the love that you have. You went to the cross. Thank you. Let it tenderize your heart. That was his intent, to demonstrate such a love that your heart would go tender. And you would experience affection. Yes, Lord. And just speak to the Lord and say, show me, show me my cross. I want to have the affection that you have. The affection that you demonstrated and say, God, show me my cross. Show me my cross that I not miss it, trying to boast in my rights. This greater love that Jesus demonstrated that he talked about is available for us if we too lay down our lives. Just say thank you to God. Start thanking him for the cross and thanking Jesus for this extreme love. And then if you dare say, Lord, show me my cross. I don't wanna miss the experience of love that you felt laying down your life. I wanna know the crown of life. Lord, show me the affection in the cross. Let me see it. This is personal. So Isaac said, you can't, you can't go off of someone else's experiences or their inspiration. God has this for us individually. Just open yourself and say, God, show me. Show me the affection. Give me that kind of greater love. And just stare at the cross right now. Behold Christ, him crucified. Yes, him resurrected, but him crucified. This greater love. Behold his hands and his feet and his side. We sing it all the time. Lord, we want this kind of love. And we honestly, we don't have it, but we want it. We say thank you for the cross. Paul calls the the fullness of God, 
the experiential knowledge of his love. In Ephesians 3, 19, I wanna pray this over our spiritual family. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might in his spirit in the inner man. That Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. All for this spiritual family, God. That Christ would dwell in our heart in faith. That he would live there. That he would dwell there. That we would be a people rooted and grounded in love. Unshakable in the affections of Christ, in the cross of Christ, that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. And here's that verse, verse 19, to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. We ask you, Father, for that revelation of the cross, of the love of God that's demonstrated to wash over this people, to wash over individuals, to wash over marriages and families and the elderly and children and teenagers to be washed in a fresh way in the love of God. Yes. That we would be filled with the fullness of God. We want the fullness, Lord, in this spiritual family. We want the fullness, all that you would give us, all the riches, all the treasures that you would give us and make available to us by your spirit. We want them all. We want them for our sons and daughters. We want them for the singers and musicians. We want them for prophetic singers. We want those for for those that evangelize in the neighborhoods and the streets. We want them for friendship group leaders. We want them for mothers and fathers and lawyers and doctors and plumbers. We want the riches, the fullness of God manifest in our midst by your spirit, the love of God. Let it wash us. Let it wash us, Lord. 